If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. When I was in college, early in my uh, college life, a series of studies came out demonstrating the remarkable biblical illiteracy that was existent in this country. In other words, people that, that were not mindful of the biblical stories anymore. Uh, simply because of our past and the way that our culture was founded in the pervasiveness of Christianity as a dominant religion. Even people who didn't believe still knew the basic stories in the Bible. So that you could say, I don't know him from Adam, and people will know the Adam to which you were referring. Now you say that, people still say that, and they have no idea really what they're saying. Nevertheless, there are still some stories, some verses that are so ingrained in the consciousness of our culture that they bear some weight of meaning. And this morning, we want to see a passage that, that comes from one such image, and that is the image of the Good Samaritan. Uh, even today, for people that have never been to church, if you talk about someone being a good Samaritan, they know what you mean. Someone that is helpful and considerate and compassionate towards others. We even have laws now called Good Samaritan laws that require us as citizens to help those in need in certain times of trouble and in certain situations. In fact, the parable of the Good Samaritan has become very common in the church, and yet I fear that it is often misunderstood even within the church. We typically see it used as an appeal for us to, to be good Samaritans, for us to go and to be helping those around us. And though that's not entirely missing the point, if that's all that we see, if that's the only point that we derive from the parable of the good Samaritan, then we've missed the point that Jesus was seeking to make in telling it. Some even go so far as to, as to use it as a basis for a social gospel appeal. Just recently, I was looking at a promotional video for an organization that uh, looks like it has a really good ministry. It is designed to help churches connect both internally with members, but also with churches uh, outside themselves, other churches, to do helpful and needed projects around your city and in schools that we might not only be good citizens, but we might have an opportunity then to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when the leader of that organization in the promotional video gave a definition of the gospel when he himself said what is the gospel it was a muted gospel it was essentially the message of the good samaritan in short form it was god in the person of jesus came down and met the needs of others and therefore we should go meet needs as well friends it's not the gospel the gospel is about a savior who died that we might be saved it is about a need that we cannot meet, nor any other can meet, save that Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a message that says our sin was so terrible that it's deserving of hell, and only the shed blood of the Son of God is able to cover it over and bring remission. And frankly, that's what this parable is about as well. Yes, as we will see, there is a call to do good work, to be compassionate. But when we look at the context of this passage, what we see is all of that flows from the gospel alone. What we see here is a clear anticipation of what is coming at the end of Luke. Namely, we cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus on the cross can save us. That's the message that we want to see this morning. So I invite you to follow along as I read for us Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. 
Luke says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? Have you read it? And he answered, How do you read it, rather? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. God, bless the reading of your word in our presence this morning. At the heart of this story, at this historical account of a day in the life of Jesus, as it were, Jesus' aim is to help this man, this lawyer, see the deep deficiency of his own heart and his need of saving grace. This parable is about the gospel itself, and we want to see that this morning. And as we see that, we first want to beware the deceit of sin. That's the first thing that we want to take away from this story, that we must beware the deceit of sin. Luke says the man standing before Jesus was a lawyer, and we hear that, and today we might think of a 1-800-CALL-SAM commercial. We might think of that kind of lawyer, or Perry Mason, or whoever comes into your mind there, depending on your age and your cultural context. But uh, here in this context, a lawyer is not that kind of a lawyer. He's not a, a secular person who, who prosecutes. No, this is a man who is an expert in the law of God, and so is called a lawyer. He is an expert in the law given by God to Israel through Moses. So here's a man who knows inside and out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He knows, maybe even has memorized all 611 commands given to the people of Israel on how they should live their life. He knows them inside and out. He is a theologian, an expert in these laws, not only in what they mean, but how they apply to everyday life. That's what a lawyer was here. And yet, despite the nature of this man's expertise, he has been deceived by the sinfulness of his own heart. This is how the narrative opens. The man deceived by sin, deceived into thinking he is able to be right with God when he's not. Here we see how this deception manifests itself. And we see, first of all, it gives him an arrogant disposition. An arrogant disposition, being deceived by the sinfulness of his heart, the man has an arrogant disposition. Luke says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. 
Who is that him? Well, as I, as I read, it's Jesus. Why is he wanting to put Jesus to the test? Well, we're not told exactly, but if we again look at the, the larger story that Luke has been telling us from the beginning of his gospel, what we see is a man, Jesus, who is welcoming of sinners. He is a friend of sinners. When they approach him, he is willing to talk with them, to spend time with them, to go to their house and eat with them, to socialize with them. And this is something that the religious leaders simply would not tolerate. This is something that they themselves would not do for fear of being considered a sinner themselves. In fact, my, my guess is they thought secretly, though Jesus put on a good act, he himself was a sinner. He did not know God's law, nor did he respect God's law. This is the reason why he was so welcoming of those who broke God's law. Now that's my supposition. We're not told exactly why this man put him to the test. Nevertheless, what Luke tells us by saying he meant to put him to the test is this, the lawyer's intentions are not good. Whatever his motive really is, they are not good. They are not helpful. He's not asking this question in good faith, but is rather seeking to ask this question as a means of making Jesus look bad. Now, from our perspective, the perspective of, of history and the completion of Luke's gospel and the word of God itself, we have to stop and just think about the sheer arrogance here. Here's a man sitting before God in the flesh, thinking he's going to put him to the test. This man isn't concerned with learning or having a real conversation. Furthermore, assuming that, that he thought Jesus to be a sinner, as one who was an expert in the law, shouldn't he be more concerned with converting Jesus from his sin to living a righteous life? Shouldn't he be seeking to go after his heart and woo him to God as a true servant? You see, this is how sin can deceive us. It can twist even the good things, the good gifts that God has given us into something wrong and rebellious. Here the man is deceived into believing that he can be in the place of God himself to make judgments. And frankly, we see people like this all the time, don't we? You can talk to them all day long, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many verses in the Bible you show them, how you reason from the Scripture saying, but this is what God says, but this is what God says. They'll come back with something like, well, I just don't think God is like that. I just don't think God should do that. If that's really what God is, then he's not a God that I could love. It goes all the way back to the garden where the, one of the first temptations was the temptation to believe that God could be judged by our standards when the reality is every single one of us will be judged by God himself who is the ultimate standard. This is where the deceit of sin leads. But it also leads, secondly, to a confused doctrine. This man is deceived by sin and now he has confused doctrine. Luke says that when he stood up to put him to the test, he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that question alone has got a big problem, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, he says, well, what do I do? He's anticipating work. He's anticipating action. He's anticipating that he is going to have to do something. But in the second part, makes it crumble. He says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Do you do anything for your inheritance? Thankfully, I don't have an inheritance. My parents aren't dead. They're still alive, right? I'm, I'm thankful for that. I still have surviving grandparents on both sides. So, so there's no inheritance that has come to me. But, but if they all pass away and inheritance comes, would I have done anything to earn that? Can I, can, can, I, can I sidle up to someone and say, I want to work for you. I want to labor day and night that you might give me an inheritance. It doesn't work that way. An inheritance is a gift. 
Because even if my parents and grandparents have, have bazillions of dollars, they are under no obligation to leave that to me. They can bequeath that to somebody else. They can put in their will that it goes all to, to some ministry or some charity. I don't have to receive the inheritance. It's a gift. So here is the confusion already in this guy's one question. What do I do to receive the gift? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's confused, and it's not just him. What we see is a pervasive problem throughout the New Testament, where at this point, many of Israel's religious leaders have confused grace and works and tried to bring them together for final salvation. They would have believed, it is by God's grace that I was born a Jew. It is by God's grace that this man has the learning that he has. It is by God's grace that he has an end with God, but now it is his working. It is what he must do that is ultimately going to ensure that he is saved, that he is right with God on the final day. That confusion was not limited to this man in his day. It was a quite common mistake, although... Some will, uh, some will say no. Some scholars today will, will, will say we've got this all wrong. It's all Martin Luther's fault. He read his own problems and his own uh, convictions and his own struggles back into the text. And so when, when Paul's talking about legalism, that's how Luther reads it, but he's not talking about legalism at all. Really? Well, what if we just look at what the Bible says? Let's just forget Luther for a minute. Let's just look at what the Bible says. Here's a guy asking what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Sounds like legalism to me. When we turn over to chapter 18 in Luke, we're going to find somebody else saying, what must I do to be saved? He's thinking of something he must do to earn, to work, to merit that salvation. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon and says, you're all sinners, you crucified your king. And they say, what must we do to find forgiveness? Everyone is looking for what they can do, how they can live up to a standard, how they can meet a bar. In other words, they're all legalists. They all think they can keep a law, that, that they can obey and therefore be saved. And Jesus sees that in the nature of this man's question. But that's not the message of the Old Testament. That wasn't the message of the Old Covenant law. That's not the message of the New Testament. That's not the message of Christianity today. The message is just the opposite. By works of the law, no man can be justified. No one can be declared right before God by what we do. And yet, and yet, the deceit of sin has convinced this man that's the very thing that he can do. It's led to a confused doctrine in his mind and in his art. In fact, this leads right to the third thing that we see. He believes and he is seeking an earnable deliverance, an earnable deliverance. Jesus answers a question with a question. And frankly, whenever you get a hostile audience, whether it's one individual or a group of individuals, I would just say, that's your best way forward. They ask a kind of leading question, trying to trap you into something. Oh yeah, what about this? Just reply to the question. Well, what do you mean by that? All right? Kind of put the, back, the ball back into their court, especially if you know good questions to ask. So Jesus does know good questions to ask. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does he say? Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're a lawyer. You should know the answer to this. How, how do you understand what the law says? The man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's a good answer. 
He's quoting two Bible verses there, one from Deuteronomy 6, the other from Leviticus 19. It was a popular answer in Jesus' day to the question about the summary of the meaning of the law. In fact, Jesus will give that same answer about how, how, how do you summarize all of the commands that God gives in the Old Testament? Love God and love your neighbor. What does Jesus say? Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus says, well done, good answer. Now go and do exactly what you said. What's the problem? Can't do it. Think about what he's saying here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Can't do that. You can't, I can't do that. You can't do that. He can't do that. Just think about that first statement about loving God with the totality of your being. What does that look like? What, what does that mean? Archbishop William Temple of a previous generation explained it like this. He said, God expects that your religion is what you do in your solitude. Think about that for a minute. Think about what he's saying there. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. When no one else is around, when you have no obligations, you have nothing on the schedule, you, you, you're completely free of any constraint of any obligation on your time, where does your mind wander? What does it drift to? What do you begin to think most about? Does it go to God? Do you begin to meditate on His attributes and His mighty saving acts? Would, would, would those thoughts of His marvelous love for you in Christ move you to tears or worship in song? Here's what William Law or William Temple believed and what I think to be true as well from what the Bible says, and that is this, the default object of our thinking and our affections is actually the real thing that we love with mind, heart, soul, and strength. So, so in those times, maybe you've had that time recently. What did your mind immediately go to? That's the thing that's really God in your life. That's the thing that you love the most. That's the thing that you're working for, that you're living for, that you think, I just can't do without. And what does Jesus say? She says, only if you can love God in that way, so that he is the complete and total center of your life. He, he, he's not just first, he, he's the hub of the wheel where all the spokes come out from. Everything is related to him, so that everything that you do is for his glory and for his honor, out of love for him because he first loved you. If you can live that way and love your neighbor as yourself, then you got it, you're in. Salvation is yours. What about loving your neighbor as yourself? What does that mean? Pastor Tim Keller says this, it means to meet the needs of your, your neighbor with all the force, with all the joy, with all the speed, with all the power with which you meet your own need. Be as happy for them when their needs are met as you would be for your own because you've put your happiness inside their happiness so that what makes you happy is what makes them happy. I can't do that. I don't do that now. Frankly, I would be very happy if the winter storm came and collapsed my neighbor's roof instead of my roof. I don't want my roof to fall in on me and have to evacuate my house. I might let the neighbors come and stay with us. I think we would do that. If I wouldn't, Melinda would, my wife. Here's the thing. The lawyer knows he's been had. He knows he's been caught. He knows he sprung a trap that he tried to set for Jesus, but he himself fell into. Jesus has told him, if that's how you think you need to live in order to inherit, to earn, to do eternal life, then go ahead and do it. And suddenly the lawyer knows, I can't do that. 
I, I, I can't do that. He's been deceived into believing that he can earn God's salvation, but now Jesus pointed out the error of his thinking. You can't actually live that way. You can't actually do that. So now the lawyer has to find some way out. He has to find some, some way to make the commandment more manageable so that he can earn the deliverance he's looking for. So he says, who is my neighbor? And Luke tells us he asked that seeking to justify himself. You understand what that means? That means he's looking at his life and he wants to be able to say, I'm doing everything that I should be doing to get eternal life. I want to justify my life before God. Therefore, Jesus, now tell me, really, come on, it can't just be everybody. Tell me who my neighbor is and then I'll know if I'm loving them the way that I should. You see, that's the context for this parable. Spiritual deceit that leads this man to believe he's right with God, he can earn his salvation, and now he's looking for a loophole to make sure he can be justified before God. So if we're, if we're warned about the deceit of sin and where it leads, now we need to behold the mercy of salvation. This is the second thing that we see from our text and what we need to do, which is behold the mercy of salvation. By asking Jesus to clarify who the neighbor was, the lawyer was trying to limit the command. He was trying to make it realistic and manageable. But Jesus won't let him get out of it. And so he replies with this parable, a story. This is what a parable is, a story used to convey spiritual truth. And at the beginning, we see here a man in a helpless condition. A man in a helpless condition. Jesus replied, I think I'll answer your question with a story. A man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now probably most of you have heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that was actually true 2,000 years ago. The Roman Empire was set up in such a way that all of the major roads from all of the outlying cities all either went directly to Rome or they connected to a road that went to Rome. That ensured that Rome became the center of life politically, socially, culturally, religiously to the empire. Likewise, regardless of your position on the compass rose, if you were going to Jerusalem, you had to go up to Jerusalem. And if you were leaving Jerusalem, you went down from Jerusalem. And in fact, we have examples of this from north, south, east, and west just in the Gospels. Why is that? Because Jerusalem itself sits up on the top of a mountain 2,500 feet above sea level. So if you're traveling towards Jerusalem, you hit the base of the mountain, I got to get to the city, you got to go up. So saying, saying these guys came down from Jerusalem, they're actually traveling east to Jericho, and that journey was a 17-mile journey down the mountain through ravines. It was a narrow winding pass. Now, why the geography lesson? Because historically we know this was ideal for thieves and robbers. There were plenty of places where you couldn't see what was coming around the bend. And these guys could lay in wait and hide and, and jump you and rob you and beat you as they did this man. That's the reason why when you read at the early Gospels, remember how, how Jesus' family is all traveling together when they go to Jerusalem? It was safety in numbers. Three robbers might be able to take down one guy, but they're probably not going to take on 30. Nevertheless, in the context of the story, here's a man traveling by himself. He gets robbed, and they rob him to the degree that they even take his clothes. They've literally left him with nothing. For good measure, perhaps to make sure he can't follow, perhaps because they intend to end his life, they beat him senseless. So bad, in fact, that Jesus says he is half dead. So the story begins with this man in a helpless situation. 
He has no resources. He has no hope of rescue. He has no one there to literally physically give him help. It's in the midst of this hopeless situation that we see a surprising compassion. A surprising compassion. He goes on to say, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, why is this significant? Who are the priests and and what's a Levite? Well, these are both descendants of Aaron. They're in that tribe. The priests were responsible for leading Israel in worship at the temple. They were the ones that offered the sacrifices, that made people ready to to receive the, the, the atonement that was given by God. They were the intermediaries. If you were going to go to God in the Old Covenant, you went through a priest. And the Levites, being of the same tribe, though not serving as priests, they were there to support the priests, to help take care of them. They, they were the guards around the temple complex to make sure that nothing happened to it. So, so these two groups of people, the, the tribe of Levi in general, and the priest from within that tribe, they were at the very center of the spiritual life of the people of Israel. They were meant to be the spiritual shepherds, the pastors as it were, for the people of God. These men would have been revered, perhaps even venerated in some way. But what is their response to this man? Both see the man in desperate need, but they make a point of walking to the other side of the street. Now, many have speculated over the years why these men did this. Some have tried to say, well, they were just trying to keep the law because perhaps the man was dead and it was, it was unlawful for a priest to, to go and to touch a dead body, uh, a, a human dead body. It made him ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to provide the sacrifices necessary for the people of God. Well, the reality is Jesus doesn't even get close to telling us their motives. And you know what I think we should draw from that? There is no motive. There is no rationale. There is no way of thinking that would provide any excuse for them to do what they did and neglect someone in obvious need. I think Jesus is making the point. They see this man, they see his helpless condition, and they make the choice to ignore him, to go on the other side of the street and continue on. And here's the, here's the clincher. They're coming from Jerusalem. That's where they worked. That's where they led worship. That's where they were supposed to exercise their authority and their, their responsibility and their privilege of being spiritual leaders. These people like the lawyer should have known the command to love your neighbor as yourself and obeyed it. And obeyed it. But that's what they didn't do. They didn't do that. And here's the astounding contrast between these two and the third man. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend I will repay you when I come back. What Jesus says in these verses, I mean it's one of those things where you kind of wish you were there moments, you know. I would have loved to have seen the lawyer's face because I know this is not anything that he could have possibly expected to hear. 
The the fact that the Samaritan was the hero of the story would have not only made his his dentures hit the slop water, as it were, because his mouth was so agape at shock and surprise, but I imagine very quickly his mouth closed, his teeth began to grit, his nostrils flared, and he became insanely angry at Jesus for making the Samaritan this hero. It's hard for us to conceive. We talked about it before, but it's hard for us to conceive the level of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. I mean, they were worse than Gentiles to the Jews, and the Jews hated the Gentiles. Why do they hate the Samaritans so much? Because the Samaritans were of mixed ethnicity. They were half Jew, they were half Gentile. They were rejected by both worlds, the Gentile world and the Jewish world, and therefore were out on their own. It came about as the result of the exile when the king of Assyria sent Gentiles to resettle the land of Samaria in Israel around 722 BC. The Jews there began intermarrying and the result was this group now known as the Samaritans. And because they had been cast off by the Jews, because they were so hated and rejected by the Jews, they, they built their own temple on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim. They had their own version of the Pentateuch and their own version of Israel's history and the two hated one another. The Samaritans believed that they were the true people of God, worshiping in the true temple. The Jews believed that they were heretics and blasphemers and worse, a walking contradiction, a mixture of Jew and Gentile, unworthy of their time or their effort. In fact, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus says that such was the the anger and the hatred, the animosity that on more than one occasion, just by living close to one another, battles and fighting would break out among the Jews and the Samaritans in this day. So much so that the Roman armies would have to come in and break them up and start crucifying those that led those fights. I began racking my brain trying to think, is there any, is there any level of hatred? Is there any level of animosity that, that would come close? And my, and my first thought was recent political events and perhaps some, perhaps some people in this country, the way they feel towards those in Al-Qaeda. Or how those in Al-Qaeda feel about us. The problem with that is that though there, there has been fighting and war and injury, it's too short. It's been such a, a small blip so far on the history of our country in terms of our awareness of them and, 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 and our relationship. It doesn't, doesn't quite hold weight. And then, and then just by God's providence, I came across a, a blog post this week and it was a, a, a reposting. Somebody scanned it in and posted it online and had a little article about it. It was uh, the original letter sent by Martin Luther King Jr. on December 19, 1956, where he advised, when he advised those that now had the privilege to ride anywhere on a bus that they wanted, how to go about riding on a bus anywhere that they wanted. He was, quote, advising victorious bus boycotters on best practices for riding the newly integrated city bus system. It's an amazing document. I, I would encourage you to go online and, and find it. If you can't, then just email me. I'll send you the link. But it, it's, it's actually amazing that the kind of advice that he gives, the, 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 the attitude of Christian love that he advocates people have, even towards those that would spit on them and berate them. And he comes right out and says, if you're not able to endure the hatred that you will experience, don't ride the bus. Because right now we're all about nonviolence. That was good advice. But it made me think about the the larger tension that existed in this country at the time. And and the, the absolutely ridiculous, unnecessary, horrific hatred and animosity that whites had towards blacks. It's mind-boggling. And yet it gets close to thinking here about 
how stunning, how shocking Jesus' illustration of the good Samaritan would have been to their ears. Can you imagine if a man had got up and told the story of perhaps a Baptist minister who saw a white man hit by a car on the road and walked on by because he was late for church? Or perhaps a white governor who also saw the situation and he had a council meeting and walked on by. And yet, in the terminology of that day, a Negro man stopped and helped this white man. Can can you imagine the indignity among some people? Now you're starting to get what this lawyer was feeling. It would have been a tremendous slap in the face to him from Jesus. And yet, and yet, this is the man who showed the compassion. The the traveler uh, assuredly is a Jew. And here is a Samaritan doing what this man would never do for him if the roles were reversed. He begins with having compassion just to stop and see what's going on. What did that compassion look like then? How did, it, how did it flesh itself out? First of all, he administers what we would call first aid. He binds up his wounds, he pours on oil and wine. Then what does he do? He gives up his ride in a town. Now, what, what town? Is he going all the way to Jericho, 17 miles? How many of you would be willing to walk 17 miles to find first aid for someone that is not your family, that you've never seen before, who if he wakes up, he might hate you to the point of attacking you? Not many. He brings him to the inn. He cares for him all through the night. He pays for both of them to stay there. And the next morning, he has to continue on his way. So what does he do? He entrusts the care of this man to the innkeeper. He gives him money in advance and says, I'll be back in a a couple weeks. And if there's anything left, if you've had to, to use more money to care for this man, if he's gotten worse or you've called in a doctor, I'll come and I'll cover the tab. It's absolutely astonishing. The display is close, it is costly, and it is comprehensive. Jesus could hardly have pictured anything greater to show this man what the mercy of salvation looks like. It's this unexpected display of compassion that then leads to a necessary confrontation. A necessary confrontation. Jesus ends the the parable here and turns back to the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now remember what the question was. That wasn't the question, was it? The question was, who is my neighbor? But now Jesus has flipped it and he asked this, who acted like the neighbor? You want to know who you should take care of, but now I'm asking you, of those three men, who should you imitate? Who fulfilled the law? Who acted like the good neighbor? Notice the man's response. I can only imagine him seething. He says, he, he does, what does he not say? He doesn't say the Samaritan. He can't bring himself to even utter the words on his lips. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus presses in on him. Look at him. He's pressing right down to the center of the problem. You go and do likewise. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to earn the inheritance of the kingdom by loving God and your neighbor, then this is what you have to do. You have to remove all spiritual pretense and emulate this man whom you hate because he is the one that's truly loved like God expects. This is the extraordinary link that you must go to in your compassion towards others. Now what should the lawyer have done at this point? 
Jesus just confronted his sin, his sin of testing God and trimming the law to be something manageable. He's just confronted his inability to love the point of earning salvation. What should he have done? He should have stopped and begged and cried out for mercy. God, I can't do it. Jesus, I cannot live that way. I cannot justify myself. I need mercy from God if I'm to be saved. Because he knows there's no way he's going to be able to live like this. Today, when we read that story, that's where we should begin as well. We should not read this story at the end and just say, oh, go and do likewise. That's the point. Be a good Samaritan. No, first we start like that lawyer. And we have to remember the context in which it's here, the context in which he's trying to justify himself. He thinks that by what he does, he will earn salvation. And we need to remember that eternal life, life with God and the joy of sins forgiven is never something that can be earned. It is an inheritance a gift of inheritance to those that God has adopted as his children. How do you come to be adopted as one of God's child children? By trusting in Jesus, the one who was our good Samaritan. When we were dead, not just half dead, but dead spiritually in our sins, without any resources to save ourselves, he showed us compassion. He showed us mercy. He did not merely bind up our wounds either or pay for a a few weeks of our recovery. No, he actually gave his life in our place. He died that we might live. He suffered the consequences of our sin, the wrath of God, and our debt was paid in full. He didn't just pay a little and now we've got to finish it out. No, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid all debts of sin owed to God. And the gospel is clear that when we believe this good news, we believe that Christ is our only hope of being justified before God, then that saving work that he accomplished is mercifully applied to our lives. God forgives our sins and considers us to be righteous because of what Christ has done. Only then... Only then when we have experienced that saving mercy are we in a position to begin even trying to love our neighbor the way that God wants us to. Moreover, we have the assurance that when we try to love this way and we fail, we're still forgiven by God. When we try and love this way and the person we're seeking to love rejects us, we're still accepted by God. If we try to love this way, in a, in, a, in a way that fulfills God's command in its fullest form, perhaps in another country, and they take our life because of it, they have the promise that we will be with God and He will one day raise us back to life from the dead. And when we show love like this and those that are being loved are astonished, as astonished as that Jew would have been to recover and see a Samaritan binding his wounds, it's then that we tell them of the astonishing love of God for sinners who can never earn that love, who can never deserve that compassion or earn that mercy. And yet it was a love that sent Christ to die for them. We tell them of the Son, Jesus, who tasted death for our salvation and was raised back to life as our eternal Savior. Let's pray. Fathers, we begin to think about this this story of this good Samaritan, we begin to catch a glimpse of the unfathomable, the unfathomable love that you have for sinners like us. Father, may we not continue to be deceived by sin, allowing it to give us a disposition towards you 
that is wrong and testing and feels like that we are superior, a confused doctrine about how to be saved, or even a desire to want to save ourselves by what we do. But Father, may it cause us to behold your magnificent mercy towards us. Mercy towards us through your Son, Jesus, who though we were in a hopeless situation, though we did not deserve help, he nevertheless came to our aid. God, may we be confronted with our sin and go to Christ to find forgiveness and life. And then, Father, by your continuing grace, may we learn to love you with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. And may we strive to love our neighbor as ourself. Father, then you will be honored, you will be glorified, and we will be able to tell those who are astonished at our love what the source of that love is, namely you. For we only love because you first loved us. Father, do this for us, for our sake, for the sake of your name in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.